Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Brought to you by Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Seeing what others have seen, but uncovering what others may not. Global research that helps you harness disruption. Voted top global research firm five years running. Merrill Lynch, Pierce Fenner and Smith Incorporated. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, we have NYU Stern's Aswath Damodaran. He is a professor at NYU Stern and specializes in valuation. And let me spend a, a moment or two just explaining exactly what that means. Whenever you make a purchase, be it a private non-publicly traded company, it could be private equity, it could be venture capital, or a public company, or a hedge fund, or a mutual fund, or anything like that, or a, a market or an index, you are making a valuation decision. You are basically saying, this company is worth paying this much money for because I expect there to be gains in the future. And there are few people in the world who are better at making that assessment than, than our guest. Um, I'll, I'll leave out all the specific details of his curriculum vitae. It's too long to list. Need All I need really need to say is he's a rock star professor, um, incredibly insightful, eloquent, intelligent uh, sort of guy. Really, really interesting conversation. Uh, I This was one of those interviews where... Uh, I expected it to be good, and I was delighted with how absolutely fascinating the guest was. So with no further ado, my conversation with NYU's Aswath Damodaran. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is NYU's Professor Aswath Damodaran. He is the Kirshner Family Chair in finance education at the NYU Stern School of Business. I'm only going to give you an abbreviated version of his curriculum vitae. Otherwise, we'll take up the full hour. A BS at Madras University and MS from the Indian Institute of Management, MBA and PhD from the University of California at Los Angeles. He is the recipient of too many fellowships and awards for teaching excellence to, to note other than to point out he is the five-time winner of the Professor of the Year at NYU. He is also the author of several highly regarded academic texts on corporate finance, valuation, and investment management. He's written so many books. Let me just reference a few. The Little Book of Stock Valuation, Investment Valuation Tools and Techniques, Corporate Finance Theory and Practice, investment philosophies, successful strategies, and the investors who made them work, and on and on. Uh, Aswith Damaradin, welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Uh, I'm, I'm excited to have you because this is an area that is so important to investors, and we really don't dive as deeply into it as we probably should. 
So, so let's just start right from the beginning. Where should investors be thinking when they look at the question of valuation? I think the first thing investors have to be asking is whether they should be doing a valuation in the first place. Because mm. valuation requires two things. One is it requires a willingness to learn the basic tools. And uh-huh. many investors want to do valuation, but they don't want to learn about accounting. They want to do valuation, but they don't want to learn about present value. They want to do valuation, but they don't want to understand the basics that drive risk and return. And that's lazy. It's lazy and it leads to you spending a lot of time thinking you're valuing companies and you walk away with actually nothing to show for it. So the first question I would ask you is, do you have time to be willing to do things you might not enjoy doing, learning those tools. What the, What is the alternative to not learning to do? Just put your money in an index fund. 90% of the world would be far better off if you just put your money in an index fund, went back to doing what you did with the rest of your life. Be mm-hmm. a doctor, be an engineer, be a plumber, do what you do in your regular life. You investing for what it's meant to do, which is to preserve and grow what you save from your job. Mm-hmm. And I think for a lot, and that's the other point I'd emphasize because a lot of people invest for the wrong reason. They want to get rich. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the reality. We invest because we want to beat the market. It's a lottery get- ticket. We're going we're gonna to find the next Apple, the next Google. And I think in the process, we make mistakes. And then we beat ourselves up about the mistakes we make. And mm-hmm. that leads to more mistakes. Sounds fairly uh, like a familiar story. So, so let's talk about the accounting work. I assume you're talking about looking at account statements, looking at balance sheets, looking at cash flows. How does uh, the average investor wrap their head around that? I would say keep it simple because I think if you take an accounting class, the problem is an accounting class is all about debit and credit and getting you into the nitty-gritty of the footnotes. Mm -hmm. I actually did an exercise where I do these webcasts where I actually took the Procter & Gamble 10K and what I did was I did a webcast where I talked about how little of the 10K is actually useful in valuation and how much of it is noise. Accountants throw in small stuff with the big stuff. They, they're incapable of telling the difference between the stuff that matters and the stuff that doesn't because they're accountants. They're detail-oriented. They're focused on it. I, I was about now, to say, not only are they detail-oriented, but when it comes to a 10K, the typical response is, hey, disclose it all. Yeah. Better to get it out than be accused of hiding something later. In fact, the, the, the point I make is data is not information. We're mistaking the two. We have a lot more data than we used to have 35 mm-hmm. years ago. Typical 10K now is five times longer than it used to be 30 years ago. Really? That's yeah. fascinating. Because of all the disclosure requirements. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the problem is people think that if you throw everything into a 10K, you are being more informative. I actually suggest that maybe we should go back to 15-page 10Ks where you focus on the things that really matter. Like a nutrition statement on the side of a can of soda. Here's the important metrics that you need to know as an investor. I'll give you an example of a completely useless section of a 10K where they describe the risks that they might face. Like 20 pages. It's all boilerplate. It's it's exactly. It's a lawyer writing that stuff, right? right? In case we get sued, we told you competition could come (laughs) in and take the market as if you didn't know that when you invested. Right. So I would actually argue that we're moving in the wrong direction by pushing more and more disclosure requirements when, in fact, we need more focus in financial statements. Better and more focused exactly. releases yeah. as opposed to just sheer volume. In fact, I do a 15-minute webcast on exactly the accounting I need you to know. Things like, do you know the difference between gross income, operating income, and net income? If you don't, you're in trouble. Right. right. So the basic stuff so that once you can, it's more f- financial statement analysis and accounting than I want you to know. Can you read a statement of cash flows? That, that, that's quite, quite interesting. So when we talk about non-cash charges and 
amortization and depreciation and, and goodwill and all these fun, geeky terms, are these of any assistance to the average investor? Most of them are not. I'll tell you, the, I've, I've described goodwill as the most destructive accounting item ever created in history. For, right. So let's let's delve into that. Right. Define goodwill for people who may not be okay. familiar with the phrase. Goodwill is the accountant admitting he screwed up because that's the way <laughs> okay. to think about it, right? So if you have a company with a $4 billion book value and I pay $10 billion, the accountant right. has a $6 billion problem to explain away. So he shows it as goodwill. So it's very squishy. It, it's very uh, elastic. It's, you can put whatever you want into that. It, it's it's a plug variable. Mm -hmm. it, you put it in because your balance sheet has to balance. It has a very unpleasant requirement. So goodwill exists for one reason alone. It balances balance sheets. It's a plug variable. Mm -hmm. In fact, I send these um, suggestions to IFRS and to GAP that they never seem to take. And one of the suggestions <laughs> I sent a few years ago was, let's rename goodwill as an algebra when you have a missing variable to make just it Just call equal. it X. Just call it X. Because then we wouldn't do crazy things like paying for goodwill. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today is Professor Aswath Damodaran of NYU Stern School of Business. He is an expert in the valuation of corporations. Let's talk about two of the hottest companies out there, both of which seem to have a somewhat ambiguous valuation, Tesla and Amazon. So let, let's talk about Tesla. You've done so much work on that. What is the bottom line with the valuation of Tesla? I mean, with all young companies, it's a story that you tell about the company that drives your valuation. The I mean, narrative. I, the narrative. And with Tesla, the narrative can lead you to different places. I mean, I'll give you, uh, I'll give you an example. When I first valued Tesla, this was about three years ago, I valued them as a luxury automobile company. I gave them the margins of luxury automobile companies, mm -hmm. and I gave them the growth you can get as a luxury automobile company. It came up with about $100 per share. Okay. okay? The problem with Tesla is you've got for lack of a better word, a delusional CEO who kind of keeps expanding the story on you, right? Uh -huh. Because in a sense, today he's an automobile company, tomorrow he's a clean energy company, day after tomorrow, God only knows where. So the story for Tesla, I call it the ultimate story stock, which is people have stopped talking about numbers. The numbers really, and that's why Tesla's stock price mm -hmm. can take all this punishment of deliveries not being on time and still hang in there because the people who invest in Tesla have bought into Elon Musk's story. Mm-hmm. And is there an Elon Musk premium? I think there's an Elon Musk fandom, which essentially, okay. Tesla investors are not investors like other companies. They don't invest in the company for the earnings, the cash flows. They're not worried about delivery schedules not being met. They're buying the Elon Musk story. So there was, there was just an article out the other day that Bloomberg um, released that showed amongst luxury automakers, right. BMW, Audi, Mercedes, mm -hmm. uh, and others, plus Tesla, in terms of sheer volume last quarter, Tesla's beating everybody. And is, I, is that a fair statement? And I think Tesla has some incredible strengths, which is, I mean, can you imagine another automobile company telling the world that they're going to come out with a new model in 2018 and 400,000 people signing up today and putting down? Insane. But, it's absolutely no, insane. Nobody else would do it. So, how, how about just the idea of someone saying, I have an idea, let's make a new automobile company. Mm -hmm. That has, hasn't been done in how many decades? And, and that's why I feel frustrated with Tesla because at the core, it has something very powerful, this connection to customers that no other automobile company does. And the reason I'm frustrated is I want them to build this incredible, great automobile company. I want focus here. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Instead, what do I get? I get them acquiring Solar City and telling me that they're building battery panels and solar power. Well, and- you're going to buy a battery pack, put it in your garage, put the solar cells on your roof, right. and now we've made you completely independent off the grid. Right. Look what we've done for you as an and, automobile and, purchaser. And in a sense, I think once you've established yourself as an automobile company, maybe you want to do this, but already you have enough on your plate. Why would you want to load <laughs> up more stuff on your plate? Especially because I think Solar City is a commodity in a commodity right. business with a huge amount of debt. So it's almost like you're adding three distractions to a company that already has so much to focus on. If Mm -hmm. I were Tesla, I'd be looking at getting the Tesla 3 delivered on time because that's going to be disastrous if you've got 400,000 people expecting the car to be delivered in 2018. And that doesn't get to happen. And this is is the low cost, under $40,000, every person, all electric automobile, which, ironically, General Motors um, turns out to be ahead of Tesla with. Chevy with Volt. their their First they had the Volt, and now they have the yeah. Bolt. They're actually going to beat Tesla to market. Yeah, and I, but I think Tesla will win that game simply because General Motors wants to go after the 15, maybe the lowest. I mean, a Tesla will never be a fully mass market automobile company mm-hmm. because I think, in a sense, they they will always trade at a premium over a GM car. So I think they will have that price premium and a profit margin. But all of that presupposes that they make the trains run on time. Right. I could talk about Tesla all day. We'll come back to that. Let's talk about Amazon. Uh, I mentioned there was a, a B, uh uh, Elon Musk premium, is there a Jeff Bezos premium at Amazon? And I think it's deserved. I mean, Amazon has been one of my pet obsessions for 20 years. It's a company really? that I valued first in 1997, and I valued pretty much every year since. I tell people I bought Amazon four times, and I've sold Amazon four times, which kind of tells you where I'm with Amazon ha- right have now. Have you regretted all of those sales? No, because I think in a sense, I, I have to stay true to my faith, which is I buy companies because I think like an investor, the price has to be less than the value. Right. Amazon is a company where the price can take off and go well ahead of value for sure. extended stretches for years. And I think part of the reason I think people are willing to pay a premium is I've never seen a company where a CEO has been more consistent about his narrative. In fact, he's the the anti-Elon Musk, right? If you go back to 1997 and you read the letter that Amazon sent to, I don't know whether you've ever read the Jeff Bezos, there's a sure. great letter that's online on what he told people he would do as a company in 97. And, and he's done it and all. And he's stayed exactly yeah. true to the script. There have been a handful of pivots, but he's pretty much been fairly consistent. They're minor shifts, right. course changes, not wholesale reversals in, in any way. In shape, fact, or form. I describe Amazon as a field of dreams company, right? Which is if we his, the what the story he told in '97 is, if we build it, they will come. Basically, he said we're going to go after revenues first. We're not going to worry about profits, and once we build the revenues, the profits will come. And he stayed true not just to that story in terms of what he said, but how he acts. You look at the Kindle. You look at basically you go product by product. Prime. So we uh, let's go through it. You have the Kindle. You have the uh, Amazon Fire, Amazon TV, and Amazon Prime, right? Basically, Amazon Prime is. I, I started Amazon Prime a few years ago. I was late to the party, yeah. and it's just become indispensable. And, Amazon Music, Amazon Video. And what they share in common is Amazon sells every one of those products at cost or below. They're open about it. Amazon Prime, they charge you ninety nine. You go to their ten k. They actually tell you how it much. 90, it was seventy nine when I joined. It's now, now ninety nine. Right. They give you the cost of how much. 
it costs them to service. It's about three hundred and ninety-nine. Basically, they're saying, "Look, we're subsidizing it," but they're saying right. it's okay because if we build it, they'll come. They'll come. Your colleague in NYU, Professor Galloway, mm-hmm. has been suggesting Amazon should go out and buy the U.S. Postal Service because their shipping costs are now in the billions, soon to be tens of billions of dollars. And you know what? If I were FedEx and UPS, I'd be terrified of where, where Amazon is going next, right? Because Amazon has this insane capacity to destroy almost every business for everybody else in the business. Mm-hmm. You know, it's done it in the retail business already. Sure. The reason I will, I will be hesitant to buy Netflix is because Amazon is entering big time into that business. UPS and FedEx, you look at Amazon entering the business because here's what Amazon does with every business they go into. They sell below cost. Uh-huh. They challenge you to match up with them. And they can keep going long after you dropped out of the game. So I think that Scott's right. I mean, I think that there is change coming to this business. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today is Aswath Damodaran. He is a professor of finance at NYU's Stern School of Business. He is also an author of numerous books, including The Little Book of Valuation and Investment Philosophies, Successful Strategies and the Investors Who Made Them Work. Well, we were previously talking about Tesla and Amazon, and but these are public companies, and the market gives us an approximate valuation every day. Let's talk a little bit about private companies where there isn't that public valuation. How do you go about valuing a non-traded private company? I think knowing the price is a crutch, right? I mean, in a sense, your value should not be a function of knowing the price. We use it in public companies often as a feedback loop to make sure we aren't screwing up too badly. Mm-hmm. So it's true, when you value a private business, you look for that crutch, it's not there. Though it depends on the private business. I valued Uber multiple times on my blog, and mm-hmm. there, there is a pricing. It's a VC pricing or a Saudi sovereign fund pricing of the company. But is that a true pricing? I've, I've heard yeah. people make that argument be- but what you're essentially doing is, instead of taking the collective wisdom of millions of investors, however misguided they right. may be at times, you're relying on one person writing a check and that valuation. In fact, this is statistical. it's a statistical problem. In the regular market, you have hundreds and hundreds of people trying to assess the price. You have one person, so all you need is one crazy person. In fact, I wrote an article on VC pricing just a couple of weeks ago on how VC pricing can very quickly get out of control because all you need is one crazy person to drive the pricing process out of control. It's a feedback it's loop a feedback and it gets loop. out of hand. It's a feedback loop. So but it's so that's that's part of the problem. The other part is when a VC says I've got five percent of a company and I paid fifty million, you can't extrapolate that simply because VCs, when they invest in the equity in a company, often get these options on the side, right? right. Downside protect. So it's much more. So it's a much it's a more sweeter deal than is exactly. Disclosed. So it's a much more difficult place to get a price, but at least you have a price. I think it gets really tough if you ask me to value the hot dog stand outside, right? Because right? I can value it. There is no price I can compare it to. And it makes me uncomfortable. It makes everybody uncomfortable not to have something check. And that, I think, is a psychological problem with valuing private businesses. You value the business and say, how do I know I'm even within the ballpark? Right. You're, you're yeah. stuck on, stuck relying on the metrics that, exactly. that you use. Right. Um, and, and to make sure people understand when you talk about options, VCs very often have the right to reinvest in a subsequent round. Right. 
at a same or discounted price to whatever that next valuation is. Right. When you say options, it's not actually stock it's, options. Yeah. It's it's both. So they get this upside advantage. Mm-hmm. You also get a downside protection sometimes, which is if the value decreases, they're allowed ways of escaping from that. So VCs are pretty careful about putting those options in and founders go along because it allows them then to inflate that because sure. because when a journalist says you know so such you know, Theranos is valued at nine billion, they're often extrapolating from a VC investment. So it serves the founder and the VCs to at least put out the surface number that everybody's buying into. So you mentioned Theranos, which was widely known as a unicorn uh, before the narrative turned out to be pretty much nonsense, and now the whole thing is sort of mid collapse. We're watching it do right. an Enron. Um, not quite the same underlying he- issues as Enron had, but when when the business school uh, case is written on that, it's going to be really interesting to see how people missed all the warning signs. What about some of the other Silicon Valley unicorns, the billion-dollar private companies? You mentioned Uber. What is Uber worth? Well, according to pricing, it's worth over $60 billion, right? right? What, do you, what do you think it's worth? I think it's worth about $25. I, I, I really and that's a like, legit number. I, well, it's my estimate of the value. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what the legit number is because Uber is very – I think the part of the problem with Uber is we know what it can do. It mm-hmm. can grow revenues like crazy. It mm-hmm. can, it's in I go to cities where you would not think Uber would be there. But it's there. Such as, yeah. give me a few examples. I was in Moscow, Sao Paulo, Jakarta, and Delhi last summer. Mm-hmm. Every single city, I, I asked the audience, how many of you got your Uber? And in every single city, 25 to 30% of the people really? in, the se- in the session said they came in by Uber. That's amazing. That's astonishing. They're, they're so that widespread. That's the good news. They, they, know, they know how to grow because they have a very low capital intensity model. To grow in a city, all they need to do is hire a guy, put him in a motel room, ask him to get some drivers together. Right. Because they don't own the cars, they don't hire the drivers, you know, the drivers don't work for them. The problem for Uber is they have a business model which is indefensible. What I mean by that mm-hmm. is they can grow revenues, but they can't make money. Right. right? Because entry is easy. So the what was happening, what's happening in the U.S. and it's concerning every ride-sharing company is Lyft offers Uber drivers two thousand dollars to switch to Lyft. Uber mm-hmm. offers Lyft. You can't drivers. do them both. It's yeah. one or the other. And and, and you, to make them exclusive, so they pay them money. So basically, what's happening is the expenses are way out of control. So while revenues are doubling, costs are tripling. So the way I described it, you got to get an an exit from this business. You got to come right. up with a defensible business. You got to increase stickiness. And much of what you're seeing in the ride-sharing space in the last year is how to increase stickiness. Stickiness in the sense of keeping drivers attached to you, keeping customers with you. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today is Professor Aswath Damodaran. He is of NYU Stern School of Business, and he is an expert in valuing companies, both private and public. Let, let's talk a little bit about valuing stocks and the market generally. We've, If you've been an investor for any length of time, you may have noticed that valuations in general have been creeping up over the years. Not just things are a little pricey today, but generally things have gone up in price in the stock market, and there are a number of different theories as to why. First, is that a fair valuation? Do stocks generally look pricier this decade and last decade than yeah. five, six, seven decades it's, ago? It's not debatable, right? The P/E ratios are up, CAPEs are up, 
price to book ratios up. You take any multiple, they're at high. Mm-hmm. But here's the way to think about it. Investing is not an absolute game. You say, I invest or not. It's a relative game. So if you're not going to invest in stocks, the question is where you're going to invest instead. Right. And what you have is a game that has fundamentally changed on that dimension. In 2007, if you didn't invest in stocks, you might have put your money in T-bonds and made 4%. Right. In corporate bonds and made 55 to 6%. But today, you don't invest in stocks. You invest in T-bonds and make 1.5%. Right. Or corporate bonds and make 2.5%. Stocks look expensive relative to their own history, but they don't look expensive relative to what my other choices are. So in other words, you can't just look at a single metric in isolation like price-to-earnings ratio and say, hey, stocks are cheap or stocks are... If it was that simple, you buy it when the PE was low, you sell it when the PE was high... And then and, you get rich, and but that's, that's not that's how it works. been my pet peeve with especially Schiller, the Schiller cape, right? Because it's mm-hmm. become this single metric. It's a Nobel Prize winner pushing it. Therefore, it must. So first, if you think about the cape and you look at the history, it goes back to 1871, and you can mm-hmm. show all kinds of relationships between cape now and returns in the future. So it's uh, it, and there again, the statistics are incontestable. Which is, if you have a, if the cape is high now. Returns in the future have tended to be lower. Mm-hmm. So people then say, okay, that means you should be out of stocks now because the CAPE is at 26 or 27 or 28, right. depending on how you compute it. But that assumes that the underlying alternative, which is what you can make if you don't invest in stocks, hasn't changed. And it has. Someone used the number not too long ago that if you were out of stocks when the CAPE was um, either somewhat elevated or very elevated over the past... 30 years, you would have missed 93% uh, of the stock rally. So you can't look at it in isolation as the right. key takeaway. In fact, what I did was I took Schiller's own numbers, mm-hmm. lest I be accused of using some variant. I took Schiller's own numbers that go back to 1871, and I put it in an Excel spreadsheet, which is on my blog, where I tried different market timing strategies based on CAPE. Like, for instance, I said, what would happen if every time the CAPE was 25% above the median from the previous 50 years, I sold stocks and the CAPE was 25 Because, I mean, ultimately, if you want me to time markets based on CAPE, sure. it's got it. And then I, try, I could not find a single timing strategy over the last 50 years where I could use CAPE to make money. Mm-hmm. I tell people correlations are not cash because all, all too often when people tell me, send me the stuff on CAPE, it's look at the correlation in CAPE and future returns. And I say, I've never been able to make money in correlations. Right. Tell me how I use this to make money. And at least based on the testing I did, I couldn't find a single way you could use CAPE to make money from timing markets. Well, just just look at the past decade. If yeah. you would have used CAPE, you would have sat in in a, a pretty nice bond rally, yeah. but you would have missed a 200 exactly. plus percent exactly. equity so. rally. It would have been, would have been pretty, pretty off. Um, so, so let's talk about, a couple of people have some theories I think are interesting. Cliff Asness of AQR said, it used to be very expensive to buy stocks. You didn't have indexes. You didn't have a lot of things that uh, made it frictionless and, and efficient. It was time consuming, expensive, and you had to be paid Investors had to be paid a reasonable rate of return to compensate for that initial friction. And most of those frictions, according to Cliff, have gone away. Is is that a fair way to look at it? I don't buy it. I mean, I, I don't think there are enough. There were ever enough frictions in this game to explain anything but a very small premium. Because there's a transactions cost argument you can always make about mm-hmm. value. That what you pay today is a function of expected future transactions costs. Sure. Where I'm using transactions costs broadly. 
And it's always been the case that if you're in a less liquid market, you're willing to pay less upfront simply because right. you worry about future. In the US market, and I, I mean, unless you're going back to 1925 or 1935, for the last 50 years, I've pretty much had this option of investing in index funds. Mm -hmm. So the Vanguard 500 index fund goes back to what, 1971, 72? Something like that, yeah. So I've always had that option. I've chosen not to use the option. And transactions costs starting in the 80s started sliding very, very quickly. Right. So it's, almost, it's not like we've gone from 7% bid ask spreads to half a percent. So if, in fact, there's a very simple testable way you could test a cliff strategy, which is to break companies down into large market cap all the way down to the least rated stocks. And if he's right, the least rated stock should have been the ones that went up the most because that's where the say. So the most liquid stocks, you should actually see underperforming the least liquid stocks if the argument for prices going up was this, hey, transactions costs have gone down. What about the concept that in the old days to build a company, you needed a lot of capital, a lot of steel building, staffing. When you look at Facebook's purchase of- um, WhatsApp. Uh, of WhatsApp or or go through the whole list, Instagram, right. go through, uh, they're, they're making these purchases, small little companies run by four or five right. people. You don't even need the servers and uh, the, the know-how you used to, 10, 20 years ago, it's all in the cloud, it's all modular, those sort of things are readily available. Mm -hmm. So companies today are so much, require so much less capital, so much less staffing, they deserve a higher multiple because the cost structure is so cheap. It's a mixed blessing, right? Because if you can grow really fast, you can also shrink really fast, <laughs> right? Because I, I have this theory right. about life cycles. Mm -hmm. Infrastructure companies, the old time infrastructure companies, it did take you decades to build up the company. Sure. But once you'd built up the company, you could live off the fat for a really long time. Competitive advantage. Exactly. Entry. And you could make money for 30, 40, 50 years before the decline set in. And the decline was slow because the same forces that took you a long time to grow are now working in your favor as you decline. Mm -hmm. In contrast, you take a tech company. I, I describe tech companies as aging in dog years. Right. Like a 10-year tech company is like a 70-year infrastructure company. Sure. You can grow really fast because, as you pointed out, it doesn't require the kind of capital investment you did as, a, as an old-time infrastructure company. But it also means you don't get to enjoy the fat for very long. I mean, I think of BlackBerry. In 2006, it was a star. By 2009... It was dead man walking, basically. It's a company that went very... And that's, I think... When you think about valuation as valuing across a life cycle, uh -huh. I'm not sure that the value of a 25-year-old life cycle tech company is going to be higher than the value of a 100-year infrastructure company because I've got to value it across the cycle. And the tech companies are probably more susceptible exactly. to rapid change exactly. than someone who's making... Uh, dishwashing soap or something exactly. like that. That's so, a very different. Yeah. So let, let's talk about some of your favorite valuation techniques. What do you think is the most informative measure of a company's valuation? I ultimately am a believer that companies should be priced based on three things. One is their cash flows. The second mm -hmm. is the value of their growth. Not growth per se, but how much it's costing them to get the growth. And so the, it's a the, the expense of growth, yeah. not just the growth percentage. Exactly. So I bring in both sides. Growth has a good side. It makes my revenues grow faster. Mm -hmm. Growth has a bad side. I've got to set aside earnings to cover the growth. The net effect is what drives the value of growth. 55% mm -hmm. of companies globally destroy value as they grow. 
destroy value. Destroy value as they grow. It's one of the scariest statistics on growth. So I always have mixed feelings when a company says, we're going to grow, because my first reaction is- What's it going to cost you? Exactly. So I look at the value of growth and I look at risk. So when I do a discounted cash flow valuation, people think of it as some kind of new model. People have always valued businesses based on cash flow, growth, and risk. I'm sure there's a Venetian glassmaker in the 1400s, (laughs) and he might not have gone through a DCF model, but I'm sure he asked questions about Hey, what are your cash flows? He knew better than to trust your accounting numbers even right. then. He talked about growth and the cost of growth, and he talked about risk. So to me, when I value a company, I've got to bring those into what I end up with as a ta- as a number for the company. What's what's the third factor? It's risk. So it's cash flows, growth, the value of growth, and risk. So those three factors play out no matter how complicated my discounted. That's the end game that I'm looking at. So what do you think are the most overrated uh, valuation metrics? I think accounting valuation to me is pointless, right? So Meaning? Saying, book value. Or, okay. You know, I, I, I see price to book gets tossed out all the time. Exactly. And, I, and, I, and to me, there's that two things on book value. The reason people get so caught up with book value is first they think that it actually is a measure of what you would get if you liquidate the company right. today, which is absolutely absurd. So what about Tobin-Q ratio along the and same? And I think it's the same lazy approach, right? <laughs> the Tobin-Q approach was developed for a different era with a lot of manufacturing companies. Heavy, no, heavy, heavy manufacturing heavy, companies right. where perhaps- So they had factories, they had exactly, machinery, they had things that could be liquidated exactly, in bankruptcy. Exactly. So again, there's, there's this attachment we have to techniques that were developed for a different age. Mm-hmm. And we keep trying to apply those techniques to the new age companies, which are 80% of the market now. Is and that 80% of, well, of, by market cap or by number of by companies? By market cap. So basically- Are, are, are how old? At least some aspect of them. When I say new age, it's their, their value comes not from physical assets. For, so I think of Coca-Cola right. as a new age company in the sense of the physical investments that Coca-Cola makes are completely useless in my determining what the value of Coca-Cola is. Really? So it's, what is it, brand recognition, intellectual property? Exactly, right? It's it's their capacity to charge a dollar for a can of water with crap and sugar and syrup thrown into it. Little coloring, little... It costs them three cents to make. It's it's pure pricing power. Right. That pricing power is not going to be reflected if I look at their plant and equipment. In fact, when they sold off their bottling, they were telling us, hey, look, you know, our physical assets don't matter. Right. It's all about brand name, right? It's the purest brand name play you can make because the bottling is separated from from the rest of the company. So what about a company like Walt Disney where you have a mix of assets? Right. You have you have the theme parks, you have the television studios, you have there's so many different moving parts. How do you put a valuation? I'm a Disney like investor. Mm-hmm. You know what scares me the most? That forty percent of Disney's value comes from ESPN. That's a fact. Now, you have a lot of competition for ESPN these days. Here's why ESPN has been the greatest cash cow in broadcasting history. Mm -hmm. Every person who's listening to the show who has cable- Knows exactly what ESPN is. Well, it's not. They're paying $7 each month of their cable bill is going to ESPN. Now, what happens when we unbundle and people stop? That's what scares me, right? Because for two decades- it was cable or nothing. You and now my right. son, who's 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 not quite thirty, has cut the cable because, you know. And the reason he's able to is he doesn't watch live sports. So to him, watching Hulu, Netflix, the right. the way I describe ESPN, it's the only thing left between cable and the abyss. Huh. Because you take live sports out of cable, you've taken the lifeblood out of cable. 
So if people want to find more of your research and writing other than the books on Amazon, where can they find your your uh, valuation discussions and where is your blog? I describe myself as a Kim Kardashian evaluation. <laughs> I, I am I, I, Not I'm quite. Nev- never shy about exposing <laughs> the material that I have. So I write a blog which uh, where I do, write once a week. And where me. is that? And that's uh, it's a Google blog. So it's actually it's called Musings on Musings on Markets. It's a Google blog. So if you type in Musings on Markets and my name, it should pop up. And I don't po- write every day, but I write whenever I find something interesting to write about. So mm-hmm. this week, I wrote about Deutsche Bank. Why? Because I was just interested in the hey, mess the that's been worth? created. Yeah. Exactly, the mess that's been created. Wells uh, Fargo should be next in your crosshairs and, uh, in terms and, uh, of value. But I roam. I valued the San Diego Clippers when Steve Ballmer bought it for $2 billion because I was curious. Is mm-hmm. this really worth $2 billion? I, I mean, I'm sorry, the Los Angeles Clippers because mm-hmm. I lived in Los Angeles. I know how much of a poor cousin the Clippers right. are to the Lakers in LA. And I said, you're paying $2 billion for the Clippers? If that's true, how much should I pay for the Lakers? I valued um, Arian Foster, the running back for the Houston, mm-hmm. uh, the, the NFL team, at one point issued tracking stock on his earnings right. power, right? So I valued a running back in the NFL. And this summer, I was actually, my, I was watching my kids, and these are grown-up kids with their Pokemon Go all over. And I said, <laughs> well, it was Nintendo really doubled in value just because everybody's using Pokemon Go. So when I think about value, I just think about value across the board. I'm, I, I want to know what the pricing of Bitcoin is. Why is Bitcoin price? So to, I'm a, I describe myself not as an expert in valuation, but as a dabbler in valuation. I'm just mm-hmm. fascinated by how people attach numbers to things and I look at them in my blog. So musing on musings on market, people are going to just right. look for Aswath Damodaran and musings on market. There's a website I have called Demodern Online. So if you type in Demodern Online, which is where- Well, you I'm, actually apologize for it not being pretty. Yeah, because I'm part of the reason <laughs> is I, I, I get offers from people who are web designers and they keep saying, I can make your website look really much more attractive. But then it's, you can't put stuff wherever you want. But then I can't, because want. I need to be, because I visit my website at least once every day or two to add stuff. It's a constant, mm-hmm. because if you look at the amount of stuff in, on the website, it's got there incrementally. So the way it works is Wednesday, I taught, uh, Monday I taught a class. When I teach the class, it's actually recorded. A YouTube video is created out of the class and I go to my website and I put the YouTube video and I put the link to the class and I put the lecture notes. I put I put pretty much my entire life is on the website. So you can get my classes, my writing, you know, my so essentially any aspect of what I do in business, I put on that website. So I do that. I do you have a YouTube channel? I have a YouTube channel on which I put playlists. The play, Some of the playlists are of my classes. Every time I do a blog post, I've learned that I can double the number of people who are exposed to that blog post by putting a YouTube video on the blog post. And and what do you discuss the post the on? Uh, I've discovered people have stopped reading. A lot of people will see, never I've read a blog See, I've gone the post. other direction. Yeah. To me, I could read so much more than watching a video or listening yeah. to it. And people have told me they'll listen to this podcast. There are a couple of apps that will let you listen to it yeah. at, I think, one point. Five times the speed or two. There's an optimal number. But I've tried to do that, and I found that that's really, especially a conversation that might be a little more complex or Mm. nuanced, I find it's a challenge. So what I do is when I do the blog post, it's actually I sit in front of my computer with slides, so I treat it like a class. I said, Mm -hmm. if I had 12 minutes to take this blog post and teach a class around it, 
Because mm-hmm. that's, to me, I mean, I, I love teaching. And to me, a blog post is just another opportunity to talk about a company so, and generalize the discussion. Because mm-hmm. you know? I don't want a blog post to ever be about just Deutsche Bank. So when I value Deutsche Bank, I want people to be able to take what I do in Deutsche Bank and value Wells Fargo with you're it. Not, you're not giving them a fish, you're teaching them to fish. Exactly. Here's, here's an example, now apply this elsewhere. Yeah. In fact, the way I describe it, I'd rather be transparently wrong than opaquely right. And I what like I mean that. by that is, this is a business where people want to be opaquely right. You listen to mm-hmm. CNBC, you see people coming on, and they talk for about six minutes. In the end of the six minutes, you say, what exactly did they say? They've been so <laughs> opaque that they're so careful because they don't want to be wrong that they've kind of covered every base and they've put smoke and mirrors in there. I'd rather be open about what I think. So I'm going to say Deutsche is worth 21 and a half and I'm buying it at 13.2. Here's why I think it's worth 21 and I could be absolutely wrong about every single one, but at least if I'm wrong, you can tell me what part of my valuation I screwed up on. You know, um, Professor Tetlock of of Wharton Mm -hmm. uh, describes what you just discussed as weasel words that when you, whenever you see someone discussing something and they're hoping to be opaquely wrong, you'll hear them say, there's a possibility, there's a better than even chance. And when you step back and look at all these statements, in reality, they have no meaning yeah. because no matter what the outcome is, right. they get to say, well, I told you that this was a possibility it's, it's and like, it happened. It's, and when it doesn't happen, it's like, well, yeah. I said it was only a possibility. Yeah. I could tell you the Giants may win the Super Bowl this year. They may. I, they I may, think you're right. right. It's, 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 I think and, you're right. They may and, win. And if they don't, I said, oh, I well, told I told you. Man. They only. Um, yeah. All right. So if people want to find your work, they could go to Musing on Markets uh, by Professor Aswath Damodaran, your YouTube uh, channel, yeah. which is going to be just search just for your name. On YouTube, you should find it. For those of you who enjoy this conversation, be sure and check out our podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue chatting about all things valuation. We love your comments and feedback. Be sure and write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Check out my daily column on bloombergview.com or follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Committed to bringing higher finance to lower carbon. Named the most innovative investment bank for climate change and sustainability by The Banker. That's the power of global connections. Bank of America, North America. Member FDIC. Welcome to the podcast. Um, I don't know why I do this. I do this every week. Uh, Thank you, Professor. This is really so interesting. I, I mentioned to you, I want to mention on the air, um, there are a few CFAs in my office. They were all excited uh, when they heard you were um, coming on the show. Oh, he's the man. He's the man on valuation. So a lot of these questions came from them. They make me look much smarter than I actually am. Um, let's talk about some, before I get into my favorite questions, and I know I only have you uh, for a finite amount of time, let, let's see if I could find some of the questions that we skipped through before that I thought were um really interesting so one of the questions that came from uh one of our cfas hey there are certain companies that are cheap aren't they cheap for a reason yeah and most companies that are cheap are cheap for a reason the whole idea in investing 
mm-hmm. is to separate the 5% of companies that are cheap, that shouldn't be cheap, from the 95% that are cheap for a good reason. So you think the, the best approach for someone who's an expert in valuation is to take a value-oriented investment tact, that that's the best strategy? Yeah. But if my, you're not going to be the, mm-hmm. one of those indexers... But I'm saying value-oriented to me is a much broader concept than value-oriented to an old-time value investor. So right? who, who Warren Buffett, for Warren example. Warren Buffett. Or ben, so you ben, think that's a, uh, or Benjamin Graham, ben, right. old-time. You're looking at it slightly differently. Right. And here's the difference. They actually want to buy companies where the price is less than the value of what's already, what's already on the ground. I mean, if you think about the classic net-net strategy, the 10 screens, right. what Ben Graham wanted was a company which had $100 in cash, no debt, and was trading at $50. Right. How many of those are there, Exactly, really? right? So in a sense, the, the sphere of old-time value investing each year gets smaller and smaller. So when I, I was in Omaha last year, at the, the, mm-hmm. and I was talking to the portfolio managers because they, for some reason, when they were polled, they picked me as one of the people they wanted to listen to. They probably will never invite me back again. <laughs> and I said, old-time value investing suffers from three problems. One is it's extraordinarily rigid, right? You have all these rules, right? right? It's very ritualistic. You've got to go through all the rituals of being a value investor, and it's very righteous. They believe they're the chosen ones, right? Uh-huh. They've done the right thing. Sure. And they think the rest of the world deserves... I, they're very puritanical. Right, in the way they're they going to get it, and yeah. they deserve and it. And they want the tech stock. So they're actually waiting for the tech stock collapse because they can wag their fingers at you and say, I told you so. You so, know? so you told that to them, yeah. and, and that's why you think you're not getting invited back? Well, they, they, in a sense... Did they chuckle or... Well, I think that they, they, they know in their heart of hearts that <laughs> this is... I mean, it's it's. I I think there are enough people in there who got past the self delusion, who know in a moment of honesty, right, that this is what's crippling old time value investing. Now, when you say crippling, some of the old time value investors, and I guess Warren Buffett has to be in that group, have done fairly well for themselves. And in fact, the fact that we keep going back to Warren Buffett. Right. As the name. He's the exception proving the rule. He's more revealing than anything else. And even Warren's not been Warren for quite a while, right? It's been for the last 10 years, he's played a very different game. And it's an insider game where he gets special deals from companies. He gets fantastic deals. Fantastic deals. deals Because he brings the Warren Buffett good housekeeping seal of approval. Basically, they're buying credibility. Right. When when I love the fact that when you compare Lehman Brothers and Goldman Sachs, Lehman Brothers turned Dick Fold. Yeah. rejected a Warren Buffett lifeline yeah. Yeah. and subsequently went out of business yeah. and Goldman Sachs is doing better than ever because yeah. they took the Buffett yeah. lifeline. In fact, I'll give you a statistic that I think is very indicative of value. Inv- there, If you compare active value investors, these mm-hmm. old-time value investors, to a value investing index fund, because value investing index fund, basically what you do is you just buy all the low-price-to-book stocks or right. low-PE stocks, you put them in an index fund. The average active value investor underperforms the value index fund by about one and a half percent. Really? 150 basis 150 points. 150 base points. The average active growth investment investor underperforms the average growth fund by only 50 basis points. So they both underperform, but the average value investor actually- That's interesting. And, I wonder and, why that is. And I think the reason is very simple. What does an old-time value investor bring to the table that's unique? Anybody can compute low PE, Right. right? or low price to book, or go the financial ratios. So 
at least a growth investor might have a chance because you got to think they about the future. Lucky. Or they could, have, they could have some competitive advantage in assessing a market and making right. judgments on whether Uber will succeed or not. So the message I left them is don't be so righteous because the average growth investor actually does much better. Even relative, though they both underperforming the they index. They both underperform. At least they're less underperforming than you are. So, so let's talk about those um, dimensions. Let's talk about the Fama French mm-hmm. factor model. You talked about uh, illiquid small cap stocks. Mm-hmm. We know small cap is a factor that tends to outperform. We also know valuation tends to out price before price to book right, yes. and then the same thing with quality. If you eliminate the high debt laden companies, mm-hmm. so so given what we know about those those factors, um, what is that telling us about just straight up valuation? Based investing. I think two things. One is we have too much data now. And part of the problem is you have so much data and everybody's looking. Every year there's a new factor that people see. We're up to, to six now. Smart betas. And, right. you know, so I, now you, they've added momentum mm-hmm. and they've added uh, this and, just six is from and, the three-factor model. And, and so you could create an index. That, and that's why when people talk about these, um, these index funds, which are they're really quasi-index funds, where you do a little bit of active stuff on right. the side. You're just not buying it purely exactly. based on market cap. You're, you're basically using a different it, right? screen. Basically, right. you tilt it. You're, they're using this proxy data from the past. And here's my cautionary note. Anytime you use any of these things, you're implicitly assuming mean reversion, right? right. I mean, every, if you look at 90% sure. of investing, it's based it's on- It's all mean reversion. And mean reversion worked incredibly well in the US market in the 20th century. Right, except- we know, Except for steam companies and leather exactly. belts. Exactly. And the reason it did was, <laughs> if you look at the history of economic growth over the centuries, and you plot the U.S. between 1945 and 2000 on that graph, it's like watching a patient go into a coma. Because if you look at a typical, you know, when you go into a hospital, they see that. Sure. It is an unusual period of history, an incredibly stable period. Which made me reverse the whole post-war exactly era. from that because you were the global economy you could do it and it, I I remember recessions used to be so predictable right you'd have a recession and six months in this would happen and three months later you know, it was it was almost like you were on on a, a regular on a, cycle exa- regular, uh, so many of these things that we know work from the pharma French are based on looking at U.S. data from 1926. Through 2000, 2000. So you have to look at outsample data and not just. But even that within period. the outsample data, mm-hmm. I think there's been a structural shift in the world. The US is no longer the center of the universe. To me, the, the wake up moment is 2008. Mm-hmm. I describe September 12th to 2008, that's a Friday before the Lehman collapse, sure. as the last day of innocence for me. That's interesting. Because I used to describe the world as developed markets versus emerging markets. I used to draw on mean reversion. And the lesson I got from 2008 was that maybe there's been a structural shift. And all these things that look like they work will continue to look like they work. But if you put your money behind them, Mm -hmm. they might not work anymore because you're looking at a very different economic model. So I'm wary of all these because it's so easy to make money on paper. So, if sure. all these, so how come more people are not beating the market? If, if all these things beat the market, why is the average active investor still underperforming the market by one to... I mean, it, I've never seen active investing in the state of angst that it's in right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, 
I know the active investors, and these are really smart people who've been. I mean, I'm, I know I've known them for thirty years, and they were they've always been extraordinarily confident people, at least in their own abilities. They right. might say collectively they all lose, but we win because we. Those people are having second thoughts about what they be. They will. They might never mention it to their clients. Of course, they couldn't do it. Uh, but when hard I catch, to charge two and twenty exactly. when you say. We're, but we're when average. I catch them in an honest moment, they say, "I don't know what I'm doing in this Ch- business anymore." Charlie Ellis has been talking about the paradox of skill since the 1970s. The the losers winning game. The, right, right. Yeah. The whole idea that. It's not that these people are bad or dumb. It's that there are so many of them and they're smart and good. That advantage goes away. If everybody is really well-schooled and well-educated and intelligent and and really skillful, how can that group essentially beat anyone else in that And here's a very simple way to think about, you know, Tom Friedman at this world becoming, Mm -hmm. the investment world has become a flatter place. I tell Mm -hmm. people in 1986, if you are an investor in New York, you started off already with a competitive advantage over a guy in Des Moines, Iowa. Right. Because the SEC offices, you could get to them. Right, uh-huh. you could go look. Remember, to get to get to a 10K or a 10Q, you actually had to show up at the offices and get the physical copy. There were no online PDF versions, so you had competitive advantages coming from location, from where you work, from as the data has become more accessible and everybody has, a, you know, computers that they can use. You, and you can't claim I'm the only mainframe computer in the world. Right. We now have it the world's become a flatter place. So it doesn't surprise me that the payoff to active investing has dropped. And the more people try, the worse they're going to do because as they try, they're expending more resources to kind of right. run in place. Huh. So I think Charlie was prescient when he wrote that. No, and that was way back, but I think it's kind of caught up with the world now. So, um, God, there's so many other questions I want to plow through. Before I get to my, my run of favorite questions, my standard questions... Um, let me ask you one or two other questions about, we talked about Tesla, we talked about, um, Amazon, uh, in, in the original 1997 forecast right. or, or, or strategic plan that Bezos made, I don't recall ever reading anything about the cloud-based computing and how they had built such a substantial infrastructure on their own. Right. How did the idea of, of, hey, let's sell this to people so we can monetize something that we have to do ourselves. When did that come along? And, and that's a five or a $10 right. billion dollar business, isn't right. it? And I think it's, you know, that sense of Amazon in the 97 never talked about, be, because it was a book retailer in 97, right? right? Purely selling books. But in the letter- And he, then music. In the, in the letter, he never mentioned that there were a book. He said, whatever business we're in, mm-hmm. we're going to go after businesses that we think are big businesses, where the existing players are not playing the game we think. And we're going to sell stuff at cost or below in that business. So in a sense, he was laying the framework for what was the first the retail business, then the entertainment business. Right. Now the cloud computing business, right? right. It's, it's, it's The basic business model is we're going to go after big businesses. Uh, if I were a bank, my, my worst case scenario is that somehow Amazon decides that the next thing they want to do is big time fintech. 
Right. Let's face it, there is no business where there's less value added by the existing players in the game. For sure. Than the banking business. And, and you think about Amazon has everybody's credit card right. on file. What do yeah. they have, half a billion clients? And they know a lot more about me than I ever want them to know, right? You open up an Amazon page, it's kind of creepy because they say, oh, you might want to look at these five items, just like Netflix, right? See, I find it less creepy from Amazon than, than I do Netflix. from Facebook. Okay. So when I go to Amazon and... Um, Nora Jones has a new yeah. CD coming yeah. out. Amazon yeah. knows I bought a Nora Jones CD six years ago, and it shows up in, you may yeah. want to see these. That's different than going to a whole... Right. So I could kind of... Hey, if I... Uh, for kids who are listening, right. there used to be a store called Tower Records right, right by NYU yeah. on, on 4th Street and Broadway. If I walked into Tower Records and they said, hey, I know you. You were here for the Peter Gabriel right. album a few years ago. Here's a new right. one. That wouldn't necessarily be right. all that creepy. But when I... Uh, so we're redoing a room in the house, right. and I'm searching for pulls, yeah. like knobs right, right. For, a, for a cabinet. And I'm not on Facebook. I'm in a wholly different right. part of the internet. But they know. And then I show up on Facebook and hear ads for... That's really creepy, yeah. and that's why when I leave Facebook, I log out right. so they can't track me because I yeah. find that... And I don't know if that's still true. That used to be true. I find that really creepy, really obnoxious, right. and, and it's why I'm not an actor. And you're right. Amazon, at least, it's a commercial relationship. They're trying right. to sell you stuff. You understand why they're and, doing it. And right? I, I've bought that right. stuff. That's yeah. the other thing is if I've bought books or CDs from Amazon mm -hmm. and they say our, our recommendation engine said you bought this, this, and this, you might be interested in this, uh, that's not a big yeah. intrusive leap. As opposed to, oh, let's see how Susie's baby is doing. No, I don't right. need you to sell me this, yeah. you know, chrome and leather pull. I decided not to get it. Stop following me yeah. around the internet. And I, I, I think that this goes to the heart of big data, right? Because, mm -hmm. big, again, big data has become this buzzword that everybody sure. throws out. 95% of the companies that claim to use big data have no idea what to do with it. Right. I, I saw, you know, a job, a job listing for, I think it was... Um, I don't know, said, Toys R Us, saying, well, mm -hmm. we want a big data specialist. I'm saying, what the heck are you guys going to do with big data? The companies that are the biggest users of big data are Google, Facebook, Netflix, and Amazon, because to them, big data actually is collecting information. And Netflix actually is even bigger into big data because they're actually making shows based on because they remember they're not, not recommending they're actually going out exact, and building products, building products based on that because they can they not only do they know what you watch they also know when you stopped watching it's it's again kind of uh -huh. creepy you go into show they remember at 27 minutes you gave sure. up on the show so they actually track what shows you're watching what shows you're stopping watching when you're stopping watching what might have caused you to stop watching and in a sense, they're incorporating all of that into trying to make shows that are just for you, right? Almost Which is a, so bizarre, because if you read William Goldman right. in Confessions of yeah. a uh, uh, of a screenwriter, he describes the the quote I love, and it applies to investing as mm -hmm. much as Hollywood. Nobody knows anything. Right. They passed on Star Wars. No one wanted to mm -hmm. make it. People, I, I think Indiana Jones was twelve studios said yeah. no to it. And he has a hundred examples of all these blockbuster films that, that left to the studio testing, left to the big it. data people. Right. So it makes me nervous that the quality of, as long as there are independents who can do that. On the other hand, I got to say, in general, 
the Amazon recommendation engine, pretty good. Right. The Netflix recommendation engine, really not bad. Um, and I, I find myself sometimes logging out of Google search right. because I want to see the objective. So when you search for something, yeah. that modifies the Google search al exactly. algorithm. Anything I've clicked on is actually a... F so I have a Firefox and yeah. a, a Chrome open up at once. I'm not logged into Firefox, but I am logged into Chrome because every now and then I'll search for something and I'll see the same results that I've seen previously right. come up. And it's like, no, no, I'm looking for something new, not trying to find right. something I looked for before. I hop over to Firefox and now it's a whole, not logged into Google, it's a whole different run of uh, results. Yeah. So that raises a whole nother question about how effective uh, big data uh, is. And about the lines that are being crossed along the way, which is- Privacy you know, and- So when I hear people complain about privacy, I tell them, look, your privacy is gone already. You and don't even- it's, you and I are both yeah. over 50. Yeah. We care about privacy. Yeah. Kids happily yeah. open the kimono yeah. for, yeah, every, every, wait, I get yeah. a free coupon here. You have access to everything. <laughs> Absolutely. They, yeah. they don't think in terms yeah. of privacy, which may, they Come may back. end up regretting yeah. that at oh, some they point will, in the future. Oh, they will. They will absolutely regret it because I think two things are happening. One is our visions are being narrowed because, as you said, the one of the advantages of not being directed to the things you like specifically you is find you find new stuff. Exactly. Look, look at you. Uh, so Pandora has a recommendation mm -hmm. engine, which right. I think is great. But Spotify just started this thing where Try it's out. Their, their new yeah. weekly playlist is. Hey, these are, obviously, if you listen to all death metal, mm -hmm. country music probably isn't going to mm -hmm. work, but if you want to expand your right. horizons just a little bit, right. and that excitement of discovery gets lost if you're only exactly. fed the same stuff. All right, I could talk about this stuff forever, but I have questions mm -hmm. I have to get to with you, because I think people want to hear less of me and more of you, so here, let me find my favorite questions. Um, we got through a lot of stuff, even if we didn't get through everything. By the way, you people are hearing this now. You should realize there's like eight pages of questions <laughs> in 18-point font, so I don't have to squint when I when I see it. So you and I talked a little bit about this. You come from the southern part of India. You mm. move to L.A. for um, grad school. You teach there. You go get your MBA and your Ph.D., Peace. How do you give up the Southern California climate and come to New York with our miserable winters? How, how, what is very, that adjustment? Very like? reluctantly. I love New York as a city. I love the fact that it's never boring, that things are always happening. Mm -hmm. But I like leaving the city sometimes. I right? know the feeling. And I do miss Southern California weather, especially on those days where I have to go out and shovel snow. So <laughs> it's a... And I, it's, it's been 31 years in New York, and mm -hmm. I think it's time. I'm at a stage in my life where I'm, I, I don't have to be in New York all year. So at some point in time, more sooner rather than later, I'll be back in California. And, and enjoying the weather. Exactly. Let, so let's talk about, I mentioned um, Berkeley, uh, where you were a lecturer, UCLA, where you got your MBA and PhD. Who were some of your early mentors? Who who guided your career along? It's interesting. Well, I was a PhD student at UCLA. We had a professor from the University of Chicago visit every summer because every winter because he didn't want sure. to the guy called Gene Farmer. Oh, really? And Gene used to love to play tennis and 
I was I used to teach tennis for a long time. Oh, so really? I, I was given uh, I was assigned as his RA simply because I could play tennis with him. Oh, that's and funny. so it was, uh, I, I was exposed to, so Gene was a very big influence on me. Um, Dick Roll, who was at UCLA then, was a big researcher in, you know, how difficult it was to test the CAPM and other models was a big mm-hmm. influence. Tom Copeland, who taught me corporate finance and then went on to McKinsey to write the first valuation book, kind of embedded the liking for valuation in corporate finance. So I was lucky. It was an interesting and exciting time to be in finance. And I think in a sense, it's... Um, when I look at how finance has kind of changed over time, it's like any other discipline. When you start the discipline, you ask really big questions. Like in physics, 100 years ago, you had Einstein and Bohr asking questions about the meaning of the universe. You look at a physics journal now. you got seven people co-writing a paper on a title that nobody outside physics can even understand what they're writing about. As disciplines age, they narrow. And the, the same thing is happening. It becomes happening. more balkanized, more focused. And both, you get specialists, right? So right. And that's what's happened in finance is we have lots of specialists. And that's not true just in academia. It's happened in practice as well. The, the industry has matured. It's matured and it's created specialists. And we've lost something in the process. We've lost those generalists. Because when I first started working with investment banks in the 1980s, I'd go into an investment bank and you'd have somebody who was a banker, but he could talk about the theory. You could mm-hmm. talk about stock markets. You could talk about bond markets. You could talk about history. And I mean, the the, the old notion of a renaissance man, I mean, th- there were a few of them around no, right. and they brought perspective to discussions that mm-hmm. you don't have anymore. I've sat in on banking discussions. We have a dozen really smart people around a table, but they're in an echo chamber where they talk to each other in their little segment of the world and they've completely lost perspective. This guy is a biotech specialist. That guy only does software. Exactly. It's not like anybody is broad yeah. anymore. So I think we need some, some. you know, my newest book is coming out in two months. It's called Narrative and Numbers. It's about storytelling and valuation because mm-hmm. to me, it's become all Excel spreadsheets and models right. all the time. People have no sense of common They're not bringing common sense in. They're not bringing... So the book I wrote was about how, when I do valuation, I start with a story for the company, whether it's Tesla or Amazon or Deutsche Bank, and the valuation comes out of the story rather than me sitting in front of a spreadsheet and just making up numbers as I go along. That's really, that's really interesting. Let, let's talk about the investors who influence you. I referenced some value investors who you said, hey, that's old school and we don't know how well that works anymore. Who are the investors who've influenced I you? I learn a little bit from everybody. Mm-hmm. I learn from Warren Buffett. I've learned the importance of having a core philosophy that you go back to when in doubt. 95% of the active money managers I run into have core, no core philosophy. They have investment strategies. You ask them, what's your philosophy? They say, I buy low PE stocks. And I said, that's not a philosophy. That's a strategy. And I think if you have a philosophy, it's a way of thinking about markets, thinking about how markets make mistakes and why you should be able to take advantage of mistakes. So I've learned from watching people like Warren Buffett about how important it is to have a core philosophy that is yours, that's not somebody else's that you can go back to. I've learned from Mike Mabusin, who's one of my favorite people he's to talk to. He's been a guest a few times. When you talk about Renaissance men, he's he's one of those, right? He can talk about philosophy. He can talk about psychology. He can Institute. talk about finance. Yep. He can talk. And I love talking to him simply because he tells me things where I say, you know what? I never thought about that. It mm-hmm. came from a different discipline, but everything is kind of related. I, I'll give an example. Uh, this summer I was in Florence and... Um, 
I was uh, no the you got the Brunelleschi dome in Florence this amazing dome and mm-hmm. uh, I was looking at the dome and my uh, as I was looking at the dome I was thinking about the fact that Brunelleschi was he was an artist he loved and this dome required huge amounts of science and architecture and he taught himself enough that he was able to build the dome mm-hmm. and I thought about how he ha- he was willing to leave his preferred habitat and go into these areas because he had to be multi-skilled and how much we need more people like that who leave their preferred habitat and move into areas that don't come easily to them and try at least to get conversant with those areas out of their comfort zone exactly. learn a new new discipline and then bring it back exactly. to to where you start um everybody uh loves this question what are some of your favorite books be they about investing fiction nonfiction it doesn't matter i do i mean i read i've read ben graham and mm-hmm. I read it with a very different lens than most people. I don't read it for the techniques. Let's face it, Ben Graham valued stocks as if they were bonds. To, mm-hmm. He was a natural fixed income guy who thought about how do I make a stock look like a bond? So to him, dividends were the equivalent of coupons. Sure. But what I get out of it is a philosophy about investing, which is you got to have, I mean, the essence of value is faith, that you, if you believe that something is worth something, you shouldn't be letting the price system provide you feedback and change your, so I like I like security analysis. I, Valuation is a faith-based exercise. Exactly. It's a faith-based exercise because you have to fa- faith in your value and faith that the market will correct its mistakes. And it's faith because if you ask me for proof on either, I can offer you nothing. Well, isn't that where mean reversion comes in? Hey, it's always eventually that's, return see, to the its always price. Always is what I don't historically. Get. And see, that's the problem. Is if you ask me for guarantees, I can offer you data, I can offer you the past, but if you say, "Is that going to happen for sure?" I'm going to say, "I don't." So it's know. history plus faith equals future performance. Right, is exactly, that uh, exactly? Is that what saying? So, so what other books uh, do you like? Um, I like. Uh, and this is going to be off kilter. There's a guy called David Liss who writes books. They're novels. L I S T L I S S S Liss. Okay. Uh, and uh, one of his books was a conspiracy of paper. It's a pay. It's a book set in the days after the South Sea bubble in mm-hmm. London. It's a novel around that, and it talks about how the bubble was created. Like people. So what would happen is South Sea Bubble is, of course, this this company that was created, which really no it for was a like, purpose to be determined. For purpose to be determined, and it was the It was a bubble in the sense people bought into the story, and the price went up and collapsed. But he talked about how the people running the company would send people out to to uh, to bars or you know, and to taverns, and whisper to other people about what was private information, but whisper loud enough that other people could hear them. It was the CNBC of its day. It, right? it was. The, I was going to say the first investor relations it, exactly, people right? ever so hired. It, it, so basically, as I was reading it, I was talking about. I was thinking about how little. So it's incredibly descriptive about how markets worked then, and how rumors got spread, and how bubbles got created. And to me, when I look at how about. Not much has changed, right? So David List, Conspiracy of Paper. David List, Conspiracy of Paper. You know, a lot of the classic books, 50, 100, 200 years old, uh, Richard Wyckoff had a book, I think 1923, How I Trade Stocks and Bonds. And if you opened it up today and substituted the word internet for telegram and, and the word railroad for shipping, 
It, it would be or no different than anything else. The Livermore books, right? I mean, the madness of crowds. I mean, there's. I I actually don't read much current stuff. Mm-hmm. I like Michael Lewis. Why? Because he can spin a great story out sure. of everything. I don't quite buy it because you can tell that he he's such a good story writer that he has an agenda and he wants to go along with that agenda. So I try to fight it, whether it's Moneyball or Flash. Moneyball you know. is hard to fight. It's it's hard to fight because at the end of it, you're saying we should all be doing it, it's, but then we discover the downside of well, Moneyball. Well, once every that that goes exactly. back to Charlie Ellis. Once yeah. we're all doing it, yeah. the competitive advantage the, goes exactly, goes away, right? So. So I love Michael Lewis for that reason. New, I, I like new, James uh, Stewart for all of his. Ah, you know, Barbarians I, at the Gate. Barbarians at the Gate and the book. So I I like reading not so dry. I I read very few books which are about how to get rich quickly. I don't read any of the Warren Buffett. There's always more lessons right. in the failures. Right. When Genius Failed right. oh, About that's Long-Term a great Capital book. That's, Management. That's one of the books I should have mentioned. Roger Lowenstein. And then uh, Bethany McLean, Smartest Guys in the Room, about Enron. The lessons are in the failures, not the successes. And it, uh, the lesson I'm looking for, to me, the big, the big, there are two things that get me into trouble in investing. One is hubris, uh-huh. and the second is overconfident. The two are related, right. right? Any book that reminds me that hubris and overconfident historically have been setups for disaster sure. is a good reminder for me. Right, because it's so easy to get caught up in. I know more than everybody else. I can put stuff into models. I and not recognize how much of the stuff you don't control. No, no doubt about that. Um, so this is a question that comes from a reader. You right. mentioned tennis. What do you do to keep mentally and/or physically fit? What do you do to relax outside of the office? You know what? As I walk around New York, I'm I get valuation cues mm-hmm. almost everywhere, which mm-hmm. is, you know, I'm looking at things and I'm trying to generalize from it. So to me, everything has some lessons for me in investing, whether I'm at a ball game. And I remember going to a Yankee game and watching the, this was in 2009 when the new Yankee stadium, I took my kids and watching the Yankees run onto the field. And I'm thinking about lease commitments and debt. Because what right. I'm thinking, what I'm seeing, you know, Mark Teixeira walk run into first base, seven years at twenty three million. I actually, va- <laughs> I took the present value of commitments at in the infield and came up with seven hundred million dollars of commitments. And right. I said, if I were buying the Yankees, this is a dead issue that I should be worrying about. Right. So to me, life is full of lessons. That's why the Brunelleschi Dome was a typical so example. I'm looking at things and I'm saying, what can I learn about my? Because to be a successful investor. I don't need to understand how Warren Buffett invests and how I need to understand what makes me tick, what makes me comfortable, what makes me uncomfortable. So I'm constantly looking for feedback from the world that I can use to kind of look inside myself because self-delusion is so easy when you're an investor. So that that's a little bit of Peter Lynch, right. you know, invest what yeah. you know, although the self-delusion issue I'm always wrestling with I remember in the middle of the financial crisis, you could walk into any Manhattan restaurant, no reservation, best seat in the house, it didn't matter, it was empty. But then when things started to take pick up again, and if you mid by mid oh nine, everybody we weren't back to normal, but things were normalizing. But that's in Manhattan where there was a trillion dollar bailout. A lot of it passed through this part of the country. There's a risk that our perspective in this little and island off the east coast of America is huge. huge. And I think when you look at things like Brexit, it should be a warning sign that we've lost perspective, mm-hmm. right? We are so, it's easy in New York to say, well, this company should do this, we should be doing this. Right. On, in the aggregate, incrementally, this is good for the, the country. country. Sure. 
what we're forgetting is... But that's is, the average. Exactly. And we're talking about a 55-year-old steel worker in Pennsylvania. He gets little consolation out of the fact that free trade is going to create more world wealth when he says, where the heck am I going to get my right. paycheck next month? And I think politically, when you look at what's happening around the world, we're paying a price for almost de deliberate blindness in the financial capitals of the world to the kind of costs that are being created in the rest of the countries sometimes. And, and, and to me, that was in Brexit, when you saw the divide between London and the rest of the mm. UK. I mean, London, what was it? 78% voted right. against Brexit. It was a signal of how big the divide is between how the financial sector sometimes looks at things and how the rest of the market is looking at those same things. And, and I also think that folks like you and I, who tend to be rational and tend to be data-driven, assume everybody else in the world is rational. And sometimes people, you know, you talk to people who voted against Brexit and you could demonstrate for them, this is going to hurt not just London, not just England, this will ultimately hurt you. You will have less wealth right. because of it. And the answer is, I don't care. I have to. Uh, what The current situation is unacceptable. I had to vote my protest. And, and in fact, that's why I wrote the book on storytelling and number crunching. I said, if you have a valuation, all you present is numbers. People will forget 15 minutes after you leave the room. But the story stays. The story with stays. The story stays. And that's why I've had to incorporate my teaching because when I first started teaching, I taught like a number cruncher. It's right. all numbers all the time. And I learned that if people want, the things that people, I, I have students who've been you know, out there 31 years, and the things they remember from my class are not the numbers that they talked about, but a story I might have told, sure. an anecdote. So the power of emotions is huge in this process. We've evolved to tell stories long before there was yeah. written language. Stories are memorable, and that's not an accident. No. It, it, it's it's actually built in. Um, so what do you do to to... to stay physically and mentally fit? What do you do outside of work? I run, I watch a movie. I still love playing baseball. tennis? I still play tennis, and not as much as I'd like to because I don't like to play indoors, so that means I'm restricted to playing. And one reason I will probably move to California sooner or later is because I can play tennis all the time down the street and mm -hmm. outside. Um, I, I got to work read. on my forehand. My backhand is good. My forehand is probably Actually, for me, it's a reverse. Backhands, you can groove in much better. And once you get it, right. your backhand Right, goes, that, that's yeah, what I'm okay. saying. My backhand is yeah. fine. I got. I'm also a lefty who and plays right. There's actually an investment lesson in that too. The mm -hmm. reason your forehand gives you more trouble is you try more stuff. There's more, you try big stuff. There's more stuff that you As try. As opposed to just stroking exactly. the ball with a backhand. And the same thing in investing. More activity often hurts you in investing sure. when you try to do too much. And sometimes doing the more natural thing and not forcing more activity is the best thing you can do. In tennis, it shows up as your forehand versus your backhand. Right. I, I Like you, I'm backwards. My yeah. forehand is better. Last two questions. Um, you work with a lot of millennials and, and college students. Someone comes to you and says, hey, I'm thinking about going into finance as a career. What sort of advice do you give them? I ask them why. You ask them ask why? Ask them why. Because... Why do you want to go into finance? And if their answer is because I think I can make more money, I say come back with a better reason and then we'll mm -hmm. talk about this. Because I think especially the subset of finance, that's investment banking and consulting, mm -hmm. the reality is, and I see this with my four kids, they're all, as I said, you know, grown up. 
but uh, my 17-year-old is thinking about going to college. He's an amazing writer. He writes poetry that doesn't rhyme, something that's beyond my comprehension because to me, poetry means the last word should always rhyme. He's a poet. He's a great writer. And he came to me and said, Dad, you know, I really love writing, but I think I should be going to a business school. And I said, why? And he said, well, that's how you can make money. I want to end up in banking and make money like everybody else. And I said, you know, it's a, it's a terrible way to structure your life. I mean, if you're going to go into finance, do it because you like being in finance. You like doing valuation, you know. And I think that that's, I think, the key to me is I think a lot of people are in finance and finance for exactly the wrong reasons. They're mm -hmm. in finance because this is what, they don't like what they're doing. They don't enjoy it. It's not part of their, I mean, it's so, to me, if they say that it's beyond money, then I ask them, what do you enjoy doing? Do you enjoy working on short-term projects where you get a quick payoff? Or do you like working on something long-term? Because that tells me whether they're better suited for a deal-making job like M&A mm -hmm. or whether they're more suited to a consulting job where you work with a client for multiple years. Because finance is such a big area that I can find a place for you depending on what your skill set is and what you enjoy doing. And our final question, mm -hmm. what is it that you know about valuation and investing today that you wish you knew 30 years ago when you started teaching? That um, I can be horribly wrong and be okay with it. I used to be afraid to be wrong, so I would pick companies where you're less likely to be wrong. I'm okay now with being wrong, and I know it's not necessarily my fault. It's the, you know, there's so many things out of my control. And I think I've understood how much luck is the dominant paradigm in this business. Much as we'd like to tell the world that it's skillful people who make money and the, this is a game where if you're lucky, you can do some really crappy stuff and get away with it. And if you're <laughs> not, you can do everything right and still, and you, and still end up losing money. Yeah. So I've learned to be okay with people who invest off the seat of their pants, invest based on astrological signs. If it works for them, it works for them. If you look, use charts, if you can make money doing whatever you're doing, who am I to come in and say that's a bad way of making money? Because you make a million dollars and I make a million dollars. We spend it the same way. So why does it matter that I make a million off long-term investing based on value and you make a million based on support and resistance lines? Well, the question is, is it luck or and repeatable? Yeah. You know, the worst thing that happens to somebody is they walk into a casino, they win money, or the first goofy stock they buy makes money, and they keep looking for that same sort of, uh, it's the process, not the outcome. Exactly, and you have to enjoy the process. And I tell people, here's a very simple test on whether you should be an active investor. Let's say you get to be 85, you're on your deathbed. I come and ask you, I, I come and ask you about it. You've been an active investor for 60 years, and you've actually made a 9% return, and you could have made 9.5% investing in an index fund. So I come and ask you whether you regret having spent a lifetime trying to pick stocks. If your answer is yes, my suggestion is you don't be an active investor. Mm -hmm. Because I invest actively, not because I hope to be rewarded. I invest actively because I truly enjoy this It's process. a process that you like. Absolutely. Professor Damodaran, this has been absolutely fascinating. Thank you for being so generous with your time. We've been speaking with NYU Stern's professor of... Finance, who specializes in valuation, uh, Professor Aswath Damodoran. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on iTunes, and you'll see all of the other 110 or so uh, conversations we've had. 
Uh, I would be remiss if I did not forget thank my booker, Taylor Riggs, my recording engineer, Charlie Vollmer, and my head of research, Michael Batnick. Be sure and send us an email and tell us what you uh, would like to hear more of, mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Seeing what others have seen, but uncovering what others may not. Global research that helps you harness disruption. Voted top global research firm five years running. Merrill Lynch, Pierce Fenner and Smith Incorporated. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.